bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. I'm Paul Dragu. We're glad you can join us. Here at The New American, we take the most important news stories, we get rid of the propaganda, and we bring you the truth. And that makes us one of the most censored and attacked publications in America. So if you enjoy this show, please share these episodes with others. Now, disease X is coming, and we better be ready to lock down and vaccinate again. That's what the wannabe rulers at Davos are braying about anyway. Also, a Canadian arsonist has just admitted he started 14 forest fires last year. And later on the show, James Howard Kunstler joins us to talk about the weffers who want to rule your life. We have all that coming up. But first, on Tuesday, the wild-haired libertarian president of Argentina dressed down the globalist and socialist elites at Davos. Javier Millet delivered a 23-minute, no-holds-barred defense of individual liberty and free market principle at this year's World Economic Forum meeting. He also ripped into socialism and collectivism in all their forms. The speech was titled, The West is in Peril. Here is a bit from the introduction. Today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others, and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Millet talked about Argentina's disastrous experience with socialism, and he defended free market capitalism. Capitalism, he said, is responsible for the rapid rise in GDP per capita and the standards of living over the last 200 years. He said it's the only moral way to eradicate poverty. It's far from being an amoral system of cutthroat competition and exploitation. True free market capitalism requires people to serve one another through the mechanism of the markets, and it rewards those who meet people's needs. Argentina's president also reminded his audience of the true nature of socialism. Listen. It should never be forgotten that socialism is always and everywhere an impoverishing phenomenon that has failed in all countries where it's been tried out. It's been a failure economically, socially, culturally, and it also murdered over a hundred million human beings. Millet also condemned abortion, radical feminism, and environmental extremism. He identified them all as the fruit of socialism. Another conflict presented by socialists is that of humans against nature, claiming that we human beings damage the planet which should be protected at all costs, even going as far as advocating for population control mechanisms or the bloody um, abortion agenda. Unfortunately, these harmful ideas have taken a strong hold in our society. Neo-Marxists have managed to co-opt the uh, common sense of the Western world, and this they have achieved by appropriating the uh, media, culture, universities, and also international organizations. In the end, Millet called businessmen and entrepreneurs heroes. 
He addressed them directly and encouraged them not to succumb to the flattery of politicians and those he called parasites who live off the state. He concluded what seemed like an invite to entrepreneurs. He said, from today onwards, you can count on Argentina as an unconditional ally. Millet received a healthy dose of applause, but we can only guess what the statist parasites, neo-Marxists, socialists, and other assorted leftists and elites that Millet condemned to their faces were thinking. So joining me to discuss today's stories is the executive senior editor of the New American Magazine, Steve Bonta. Hi, Steve. Hi, Paul. It's rare that an item of news makes me smile so much. Right. It's so nice it to is. hear something so sane from a world leader. Well, this is unprecedented, as far as I can tell. Now, maybe Bill Jasper, who knows a lot more about the ins and outs of all these conferences in history, would correct me here, but I don't believe anyone at any international forum, any of the big UN conferences, anything like this, has ever delivered a speech like mm -hmm. this. Just, te I mean, tell telling the elitists, uh, socialists and globalists to their face that they're elitists, socialists and globalists, and not only that, going on to unabashedly uh, defend free market and freedoms generally, and also to bash aspects of what we call now cult cultural Marxism that the radical left has, has mm -hmm. more or less pushed on all of us, yeah. starting with radical feminism and going from there. He made yeah. such a strong point. I, you you translated the speech, which is going to be available, which is available on thenewamerican.com. And I read it last night, and like you, I was inspired. Um, he did. He got a little into the weeds there, but the point is he made an undisputable uh, point uh, as far as there is nothing better than capitalism, free market capitalism. It, he showed that. He said, look, at, look what happened in the last 200 years, and there's only one element one component that could have a uh, that is, that is responsible for this, and that's free market capitalism. What can po what can those people possibly say against that? Well, you know, I mean, if you don't believe the principles, the first principles in your heart, for example, if you don't really believe that men are in, in, in you know endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Which by, words, by the way, he included in his speech. Yes. He, he changed pursuit of happiness to the more Lockean original version, property. property but other yes. than that, he, he referred to that as the cornerstone of our creed. Okay, If you don't believe that in a moral sense, if you don't think that people ought to have these things, that freedom is, is, is bonum in se, as they like to say, good for because it's good, all right? yeah. then no amount of statistics, no amount of... of, of sophisticated argumentation, such as Millet furnished in droves in his talk, are going to convince you otherwise. Yes. It, it, at root, it becomes a moral issue. Whereas people who morally are, are inclined to believe that there is a God who does confer these inalienable rights, that it's therefore our job to try to protect these rights, even if they're not as sophisticated in terms of economic theory as a guy like Millet, they're going to be a receptive audience. Yeah. Right. And the and the rest are going to poo poo ridicule and otherwise traduce him. Well, I'm sure they're thinking, well, we now live in a world where, you know, the planet is in peril and we have all this uh, inequity or, or whatnot. I, I mean, obviously, we don't know uh, what what they're thinking. I guess the, the bigger question or the more more curious thing is, like, why would they invite him in the first place? Well, oh, uh, that that were, I, I think probably <clears throat> Klaus Schaub and company hoped that once he was elected, that he would he would. Shed, shed all that all that radical stuff he was saying out in the yeah. hustings and, and all that crazy a stuff about a responsible global citizen and understand how things really are and yeah. adapt a pragma, uh, pragmatic stance and so forth and so on. And boy, were they wrong. Um, I, I would say, though, that Millet, ironically, although he singled out, among other things, you know, 
environmental extremism. He's probably one of the only heads of state who traveled to that event on commercial airliner. Yeah. Okay. And my, so, so he actually <laughs> is a better "quote unquote" global citizen with a smaller carbon footprint, as it were, than than most of these the, these priggish elites who who attend events like like Davos. Moreover, ever since he was a, a, a you know a, a member of Congress, ever since he's been a public servant, he has always donated his entire salary mm. to the public. He raffles it off. Yeah. All right. Wow. So he, I didn't he know lives that. simply and inexpensively. I mean, the guy walks the walk. Better than all the people who, in the name of advancing radical socialism, preach the desirability of poverty and having nothing and being happy and all this type of thing. He actually doesn't have a lot. I think he earns some income from from books that he's written and stuff like this. But you know, he is not a rich person. He's very bright, very articulate, but ultimately a well, man he's of the a people. Fighter too. Well, he's a man of the people. He used to be quite, quite, quite an accomplished soccer player and also rock star. I think he yeah, a he mentioned rock star. that in he, an interview. Yeah, he played good. played guitar. So that's he's, why he's got the hair. Huh? Yeah, he's a bit like Trump in that sense. He's sort of this man of the people, but except he doesn't have Trump's wealth. And uh, but nevertheless, he lives frugally, and he's all about his ideals, and nothing else really matters. Yeah, like you said, he he walks the talk. Well. Hopefully uh, this catches on. It's inspiring because if you look at the left, they don't have a Malay. They don't have a Trump. They don't have, uh, you know, several of these characters, you know, even in the news industry, you know, they don't have a whatever, a, a Tucker or anything like that. They don't have anyone to inspire them because their ideals suck. They're so bad. They really are bad. And everyone knows this. And it's I think it's just a matter of getting the leadership in the organization to smash this nonsense once and for all. Well, it's, it's like that wonderful literary illusion from T.S. Eliot. You know, they're, 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 these are the hollow men, the stuffed men. They have no internal substance. They live for the state. They have no morality. And they're very gray and nondescript by nature. Thanks, Steve. After this, disease X is coming. And our aspiring masters are telling us we better get ready to lock down and vaccinate again. For more news and in-depth analysis from the New American Magazine, the kind that you will not get anywhere else, make sure you have a subscription to our twice-monthly print edition of the magazine. No other magazine has been as accurate and for as long about where policy and culture were heading than the New American. You can subscribe online at thenewamerican.com. Just hit the magazine tab on top, and then on the drop-down, hit the subscribe button. Or, if you prefer, you can call for a subscription. Call one 800 727 8783 Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 Central Time. That's 800-727-8783. The next pandemic is a matter of when, not if. And the way to tackle it will be by implementing the same totalitarian measures that failed during COVID. 
That's essentially what Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization, said in Davos yesterday. One of the panel discussions held at the World Economic Forum was called Preparing for Disease X. Tedros defined Disease X as the disease we don't know about yet. The WHO has said that Disease X could result in 20 times more fatalities than the coronavirus pandemic. They didn't explain what made them believe that, but they're certainly sure that that's what's going to happen. And the way to combat this upcoming disease, Tedros and company said, is by locking us down and jamming suspect biological concoctions into our bodies. To make sure everyone gets jabbed when disease X hits, Tedros said the WHO was working to help with the production of mRNA vaccines all over the globe. The WHO chief also pushed for the pandemic agreement that could be signed this May. He took a jab at those pesky notions of national sovereignty that some of us hold. He said the pursuit of narrow national interests is counterproductive and that only a concerted global response can save the world. In other words, globalism. The pandemic agreement can bring all the experience, all the challenges that we have faced and all the solutions into one. And that agreement can help us to prepare for the future in, in a better way because this is about a common enemy. And without a shared response, starting from the preparedness, it, you know, we will face the same problem as, as, as COVID. National interest, very narrow national interest should not come into, into the way. Of course, national interest is natural, but it's the narrow national interest that could be difficult and affecting the negotiations even as, 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 as we speak. The theme of this year's WF annual meeting is rebuilding trust. However, none of the speakers, most of whom played a role in the COVID response, showed any remorse or willingness to take responsibility for the harm and the death that came about thanks to their COVID measures. When independent reporters asked Tedros directly about that, he was all out of answers. Listen. Do you apologize for what you did during COVID? And should people have to go through disease X with you now that you say it's 10 times worse? Are you going to apologize for getting everything wrong from mask mandates to vaccine mandates? Okay, sorry. Don't push me. Dr. Dr. Tedros, this is your chance to apologize to the world for your role during COVID. Would you like to take it? It's okay to get... Do we have to wait for you to get everything wrong in disease X? Do you think the vaccine mandates are wrong? You got everything from mask mandates to vaccines wrong. Do you want to apologize? Or do we have to suffer? In Australia, we, wait, we had the longest lockdowns in our city and that was based on your advice. You don't want to apologize to Australians or anyone? What about the current excess deaths? Do you want to talk about those? Do you take any responsibility for people who died because of the policies you pushed? It's rebuild, regaining. They say regaining trust is the theme this year. Are you part of the reason why they've lost trust in the WEF and everybody finally knows who you are and what you stand for? <laughs> that, those are good questions. You know what I really don't like is his smirk, his, his non-answer. Like he's too good to answer 
to the common people. There he is on the platform. He's talking about the agreement and everything that needs to happen all around the world. Then comes one little reporter from Australia. He asks him the questions we all have. Nothing, not a single thing. Earlier in the, vi in the video, I'll, I'll give him this. He said, I'm in a hurry to a meeting. So they just followed him along. That's how, how that came to be. So I guess that was his excuse for not answering at all. Well, I, I suppose. I, I mean, I'm not sure what he's going to say. I mean, obviously, if he, he, you know, he knows if he says, you're right, my bad, sorry about all those dead uh -huh. millions. Well, you know, he's going to end up in The Hague or something like that. I just wish people would learn to, well, he, he's got the most unpronounceable last name. People call him Dr. Tedros. Yes, as we did, because I can't pronounce Well, right, they did too. His last name is Gebreyesus, oh. and uh, that's a reasonable approximation. I, I don't speak any Amharic, but there you go. I think he's Ethiopian, so that would be an Amharic name. Yeah. But uh, yeah, very strange guy. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what's, you know what's likely to happen going forward, but I, I have to say this. I hope that the Australians, the New Zealanders, the Canadians, the Americans, the peoples of European Union and so forth and so on, maybe have, have drawn the proper lesson from the COVID experience. And that is that what, we, what, what, what weirdos like us have been saying for decades, namely, don't trust the international system. It's, you know, it's a trap. Maybe they're finally going to listen because, you know, the guy says, okay, you should apologize because my government acted on your recommendation. But that begs the question, why, why did the Australian government act on the recommendation of some obscure physician from a relatively obscure country, at least to the Western world, uh -huh. who's been elevated to this position in an organization that officially at least has no government status, and yet these policy recommendations resonated throughout the world. And the right. same could be said, mutatis mutandis, of the radical environmental agenda and all these other things that are coming to pass that are being implemented at the national and the local level all across the world by leaders who view themselves now as beholden to these global elites. Okay? So it isn't just COVID. And in, the few, in a couple more years, when they actually start banning fossil fuels, so-called fossil fuels, people are going to scream some more. You're going to apologize. Well, now, wait a minute here. Why aren't we asking that question of our national leaders? Nobody forced anyone to do what Tedros Ghebreyesus told them they ought to do. Mm -hmm. Okay? For that matter, you know, even, even Dr. Fauci here yeah. in the United States. He's is, like the Fauci of the other side of the world, Yeah, right? I mean, even Fauci himself doesn't have any, didn't have any executive power. But he, but was, he was very But he was given that power. And the reason is that we have fallen asleep at the wheel. We, the people, we allow these elites to take control and then to enact their, old agenda, their own agenda with nary a peep until all of a sudden, ooh, we get major blowback on the gra at the grassroots level because something happens like a, like a, like a major terrorist attack. Remember 9-11 and what happened after that, uh, or a pandemic, and they immediately ex exploit it to the hilt. Our freedoms contract dramatically, and then we scream and yell. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, while I'm sympathetic— I'm not. I I, I, w I would enjoin people like that energetic young Australian to look in the mirror and say, why, why is it that Australia, follow, yeah. once one of the world's freest countries, is now kowtowing to this to, to these internationals? And, and 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 we know that why that's the case. We've we've reported in, on that now. But what they're describing, what is happening here? Like what you said, Tedros was never elected. Fauci was never elected. But it's this rule by expert. That's technocracy. That's what we experience, is it not? It's what we, well, again, because, because we have decided we're just going to sit back and play our video games and do our TikTok and all this stuff. 
and ignore what is happening. Yeah. And unfortunately, the price, well, one of the prices that needs to be paid for freedom is eternal vigilance. Yes. And I would add to that informed eternal vigilance. And a lot of people, it would appear, are simply not willing, be they in Australia or New York City or London or wherever, mm-hmm. are just not willing to pay the price. Now, there's a large part of the world, communist China, for example, where people are just acquiescent. They just say, okay, this is the way things are. The government's in charge. We obey. Well, the government but was in charge in, before. But in theory, at least, we in the West rose above that a couple centuries back. And we are clawing our way toward more and more you know, freedom and government accountability, except suddenly we're not. Yeah. We're just sitting back and saying, well, we'll let the guys who run things run things. Let's let the experts in And charge. now we've seen what and that that's can lead what we to. Get. And we pay, we pay for it dearly. You know? And where people did push back, there was more freedom. There were little, these little enclaves. But hopefully, like you said, now people can wake up and realize if we don't wake up, this is what the future is going to look like. After this, an arsonist admits to setting fires in Canada. Can you believe after all the recent violent protests, looting and destruction, some communities are considering either defunding or abolishing the police? If you agree that now is the time when police protection is needed most, then it's time we stand up and support your local police and the communities they serve. Call 800-JBS-USA-1 and request your free Support Your Local Police info packet. That's 800-JBS-USA-1 and request your free Support Your Local Police info packet today. The New American has just released our latest bookazine, a collection of articles on self-reliance. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and without the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. In this Polish Collector's Edition, we have articles on a number of important topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, building a wood shack, and the importance of community, among many other topics. Now, the authors of the articles are experts in their fields. We encourage you to get a copy. You can order your copy at thenewamerican.com forward slash shop, or you can call our office at 800-727-8783. However you do it, make sure you get your copy of Self-Reliance, The Foundation of Freedom. A Canadian arsonist has admitted to playing a major role in the country's forest fires last year. 38-year-old Brian Paré pleaded guilty on Tuesday in Quebec to setting 14 different fires. Prosecutors said two of the fires forced people in nearly 500 homes to evacuate last spring. The entire town of Chape in Quebec had to evacuate. Later, the mayor of that town resigned for her position because of burnout from the stress of handling the disaster. The man has been charged with 13 counts of arson and one count of arson with disregard for human life. A pre-sentencing report is expected by April 22nd. Well, that's about the same time that Tesla should start working again in Chicago. Right now, it seems they're all dead. Fox Business reports that charging stations across the city are lined with dead cars in freezing cold. The news outlet quoted one frustrated EV owner saying, we have a bunch of dead robots out here. The report says that charging stations have essentially turned into car graveyards in recent days as temperatures have dropped to the negative double digits. Writing on his Energy Transition Absurdities substack, industry expert David Blackman explains the cold, hard truth. He said, one of the worst kept secrets in the EV world, after all, is that the batteries lose a huge part of their range anytime the ambient air temperatures drop below freezing. And freezing is a heat wave in Chicago in the winter. 
Blackman also says that Teslas are beautiful, stylish cars with a lot of cool features, which are useful for about 180 days in a year, as long as you don't want to take a long road trip. All right, I'm gonna bring Steve back in here. So this, I think, all fits into part of the everything else we've been talking about, this insanity. Obviously, the EVs are part of this green push, uh, one of the many elements that they're trying to push on us. And it's another one of those examples where it just doesn't work. Their ideas doesn't work. EVs don't work. They don't have the, for instance, they don't have the infrastructures. But as of now, they don't even have the longevity. And of course, how are you going to get over? I used to be a mechanic. And as we all know, and it doesn't take a mechanic to know when it's cold, the batteries really take a hit. And if you have a battery that's on the fritz, when it gets really cold, it dies. Apparently, uh, that that seems to be pretty regular with these EVs. Well, you know, it's sort of like high-speed rail. You know, we have the technology. We could build high-speed rails the same as they have in Japan, China, and, and Western Europe. But what we don't have is the... Of, that those places do have is the requisite population density to make that kind of a scheme workable. And the same is true with these, these electric and hybrid vehicles. They're actually very popular in places like China because, first of all, most people in China, a large part of the Chinese population lives in subtropical, large subtropical cities where it really it doesn't, works. never gets very cold. Yes. They don't travel very far. Or if they do, they go you know, by yeah. bus with 150 other people. Right. Um, so the idea of just hopping in your car and going off and camping in the in the wilderness of Montana is just not something or the equivalent thereof in China or in Western Europe is just not an idea that occurs to a lot of people. If you are going to live your entire life in a relatively warm, large, you know, an urban area, you know, they're not they're not necessarily a bad idea. They're 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 yeah. interesting to drive. They're very quiet and smooth. I, I drove them several times when I lived in China, cars of this sort, not a Tesla mm -hmm. per se. But there's a reason that they're popular. It's interesting technology, but like all technology, you know, I mean, you limits. know, wind technology does have a use, but only in places where there's a lot of wind. Yeah. Hydroelectric technology only works where you have the requisite, you know, large turbulent water flow to, you know, to power the turbines. So, you know, these battery, but the only type of, of fuel and energy technology that seems to be usable no matter where you go in the world are those horrible fossil fuels? Yeah, those yeah, natural ones. gas and petroleum. Those those things. And even there, I mean, there are a couple places like Irkutsk. It gets so cold, in, you know, in Siberia in the winter that gasoline literally turns to jelly. You know, so you have to keep cars. And you know, the northern Yukon, they keep cars garaged indoors. Yeah, they put and they a block use, heater and, on yeah, it. Yeah, engine block heaters and all this stuff. So even they have their limitations, but they are by far the best means of providing yes. transportation that we found. They meaning you know, various types of, you know, gas and ga gasoline derivatives. So, you yeah. know, this is an inescapable reality enjoined upon us by the laws of physics and chemistry. And uh, I don't think even socialists are going to be able to change those. Right. Let's go to the other story. Now, we have known this for a while. I mean, you can go on your preferred search engine and you can look for arsonists who've been convicted, who had admitted to setting fires. Um, I don't know that most of them do it to prove their point or whatever, uh, there's rumors that this guy is some sort of, uh, you know, some rabid climate cultist or whatever. But we have 14 fires, lots of lots of swaths of land. And we remember in Canada, I don't know if some of the, the smoke that we were getting here down in Wisconsin was from any of the fires that he had specifically. Not from uh, Quebec, no. They from, were all coming down were, from Saskatchewan and yeah. Western Ontario. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's like when we hear about those fires, all we hear is what? 
climate change, climate change, climate change, climate change. And a lot of times, I don't know, if more often than not, I don't know what, what the percentage is. We know it's not necessarily climate change. It is the climate because as you know, you've been out West, you know how dry it gets there. Mm. They've had fires for thousands of years. Uh, you know, even so, much, so much so that many of the life forms have adapted. So there are certain pine species, for example, whose cones will not split open and generate except, uh, and geminate, I mean to say, except under conditions of the heat of forest fires. And so it's possible if there's not a forest fire in the area for 500 years that you have the seeds lying in the ground, yeah. ungeminated, waiting for the next brush fire or forest fire to sweep yeah, through. Yeah, and, yeah. And I mean, the natives, the native Indians used to backburn, you know? Oh, right. Well, they do that in Australia and a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And now, it, you know, there's been a push to, especially out West. And, I, and I've said, because I've sat in meetings with the NRC and we've, I've, I've reported on several fires out there and everyone knows that the way to help mitigate the effect of these fires has been to, to burn, to clear out the forest, to log and things like that. And this is just another case, you know, in the first segment, we were talking about how nice and refreshing it was to hear something sane. And here we are back again, talking about the insane things that, that is being done uh, from pressure from insane people when we all know what the right thing would be to do. Well, I mean, if you want to see what, <clears throat> what the wilderness looks like, absent fire companies and their, you know, their hot shots and their borate bombers and all the other stuff that they use in places like Arizona and California to keep the natural fire cycles in check. Just go to Northern Alaska. Northern Alaska. They let them burn. They simply let them burn. They, yeah. they, they, they burn fire breaks around the, uh, around the bush communities and the fires. And you, so you drive across and- They'll and have you, some lines and that's yeah, it. Yeah. And so driving through Alaska, you, you go, wow, this is beautiful wilderness. And then suddenly yeah. it's this charred moonscape for 50 miles. And then you're back to the rich, beautiful Northern boreal forest. And so because that's what the, that's what the, the, the natural world looks like. Fire is a part of, of nature. It's all, you know, set by lightning strikes and all this kind of thing set by perverse human beings is not so natural. I mean, my, my brother was part of a team that discovered that in Australia, it got national news a few years back, in Australia, there are actually species of birds, kites and other birds of prey, that use fires that will deliberately set fires to, to, to flush up small animals, to catch them. So they'll get a burning brand from a brush fire, carry it, and set it somewhere else in the, in the, in the savannah and start a new fire there because they've learned that fire actually stirs up prey for them. So the natural world evolves and adapts yeah. in all kinds of creative ways to the, the reality of fires. Uh, and this notion that fires are a consequence of global warming. I remember when I lived in Pennsylvania circa 20 years ago, there were massive forest fires one year in West Virginia, which no one thought to ascribe to global warming. The sky was dark and hazy for days, and then it went away. And that's just, that's the way things are. These things happen from time to time. Yes. And I hope, I hope we get to a point where I, I feel like we're reaching that point where there's this critical mass uh, where people are realizing the truth about all these things, uh, climate change, socialism, like, uh, like we discussed, EVs, uh, the dependability of, that we already have reliable fuels and things like that. If and, people will take the time to inform themselves, they'll figure it out, but they need to act. They need, inform, they, they need to get off the couch yeah. and do some reading. And then they need to share that information with Correct. others. And, and that's the way we get there. Thank you, Steve. Next up, James Howard Kunstler joins us to talk about the Weffers. The founders believed in being self-reliant. When you're dependent on others, you're easier to control. Stay strong. Take care of yourself and your family. Get a copy of our latest collector's edition, Self-Reliance. Learn about the necessity of self-reliance for a free people and basic tips on how to get there. 
Never give up hope. James Howard Kunstler is the author of a number of books, including The Long Emergency, which is being turned into a documentary. He's also a lecturer and the man behind one of the most entertaining and best blogs out there. His last one hit my inbox Monday, and it's titled, Cheers to You, Weffers of Davos. Welcome, Jim. A pleasure to be with you. Yes, we uh, like I said, I, I enjoy your blogs, and I'm glad to see that you're keeping up with the WF. That has actually been the theme of today's show. Uh, I assume, like I said, you're keeping up with it. What has been um, some of your initial takes of what's happened thus far this week? Well, uh, it's very clear the uh, president of, I guess, the EU, um, Ursula von der Leyen, gave the plenary uh, uh, keynote speech to the group. And she basically said... uh, the most important uh, thing on our agenda this year is misinformation and disinformation, which tells me that th- they uh, feel like they're losing really badly because uh, uh, what she means by misinformation is the truth about their operation, which is a kind of a global racketeering operation. And uh, people are getting hip to it. And uh, the you know, the problem at the moment is that our governments are still playing ball with the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. And uh, it's really important that we either get new governments or start to persuade our governments to not play ball with this rogue outfit, which, yeah. you know, among other things, seems to be partly behind the attempt to kill a lot of people in the world with uh, uh, mRNA vaccines. Yeah, yeah, we were... Um... That was our second story today where we were talking about this disease X, as you may have heard. They're saying it's coming. It's going to be 20 times uh, twenty times more lethal and whatnot. And I don't know if you saw there were some reporters chasing. I did. People. And it's a really interesting kind of angle on this. Uh, frankly, my impression of this new disease X campaign is that it may be an attempt to cover up the deaths from vaccine injuries that mm. we may start to see in the months and and weeks ahead. And and by that, I mean, uh, you know, a very large number of people uh, in Western civilization and around the world have gotten these vaccines and they've impaired their immune systems. And it's, you know, there's there's a fair uh, percentage of a possibility that some, you know, common influenza type uh, disease is going to come along and, and really uh, take out a lot of people. So I, I think that this was partly the intention of the uh, COVID-19 vaccination in the first place was to get to kill a lot of people and, and to damage their immune systems and damage their organs. And, you know, we're seeing a, a lot of different ways that this vaccine is killing people. Yes. Well, and I don't know. Are you familiar uh, Recently, the FDA, I think there were a couple of writers for the FDA or whatever, someone from the FDA warned about this massive rise, apparently, in deaths because people, get this, are not getting vaccinated anymore. So I'm, I'm kind of maybe on the same lane as you. I'm, I'm worried, but, you know, maybe that's their way to cover up what they know is coming. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you be keeping up with these people, if these people had their way, these these weffers, these these tyrants, these aspiring tyrants had their way what would our lives look like all over the world? I don't think they're going to have their way, and I'll tell you why. 
most of the goals and objectives of the WEF are, are really counter to the macro trends that are present in the world right now. And specifically what I mean is the macro trend of uh, uh, centralization or decentralization. You know, the 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 WEF is imagining that we're going to have sort of one kind of global governance and that it will be highly centralized. But, the you know, the real trend in the world is to decentralize and to disaggregate uh, large things and make them smaller. You know, we've already seen the beginning of this process with uh, a number of former nations breaking up. You know, Yugoslavia broke up into three or four different nations. The Soviet Union broke up into, you know, six different nations, including you know, the majority of, of the Soviet Union, Russia. Um, and, and I think that that trend is actually going to continue. And uh, we may even see it in the United States where we're developing such uh, striking regional conflict and friction between different, you know, basically the East and West Coast and the center of the country that uh, even today, for example, uh, we're, we're liable to see a conflict between the Texas state police and the border patrol. Who, yeah. uh, you know, there's a conflict developing down there where the, you know, Texas wants to take control of their own border because the U.S. is not. Yeah, yeah. And, um, the National you know, Guard, they, they they stare down the, the border patrol agents and kick them out, at least uh, over there in Eagle Pass. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen the news yet about that this morning, but, you know, that's what we're waiting on to, yeah. to see. And uh, so... So you don't think they'll win? No. So there's a centralization thing. There's the other macro trend is relocalization, okay, uh, where the, the level of governance is going to go, uh, you know, become a much shorter horizon to where you are. Um, another macro trend is the downscaling of many of the gigantic activities that we have now. You know, you can state, I think, categorically that anything that's organized at the giant scale is going to wobble and fail, whether it's a gigantic overgrown government or a gigantic state university or a gigantic uh, national retail operation. All of these things are starting to reach kind of critical thresholds where it's really harder and harder for them to be effective at what they're doing. And you especially see this in the federal government. And it was one of my themes in the long emergency book that, in fact, the federal government would become increasingly impotent and ineffectual and unable to discharge its duties and obligations. So, you know, for all the noise that uh, the Fed, uh, the federal government's making now and all of the kind of uh, uh, dramatic action in the, you know, the lawfare arena, there are an awful lot of things that they can't do right anymore at all. And, uh, you know, I think people are beginning to notice. Uh, since I have you here, I'd like to get your take on what you think is going to happen in the United States this year. As you know, everyone's saying this is going to be a year like unlike any other year. And they all say that thing. It's like we can feel it. Something's going to happen. What is your version of how assumingly this array is going to uh, erupt? And uh, obviously we got the elections. What What is your take on what this is going to pan out like? I think the order of the day or the order of the year will be increasing disorder including a lot of social disorder, financial disorder, and political disorder. 
Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, we had uh, a tumultuous election situation. The Democratic Party is demonstrating that uh, nothing is beneath them to get the outcomes that they want. So, you know, we can expect any kind of uh, mischief and skullduggery from them around the election. Uh, at the same time, you know, you have to uh, also recognize the Republican Party has not done anything to make the important reforms in, in election procedures that would tend to guarantee a better outcome, like, you know, same day election day voting, mm -hmm. you know, not stretching it out over weeks, paper ballots instead of uh, uh, machines, that, tabulating machines that, you know, for all we know are, are you know, connected to the Internet and subject to manipulation. Right. And, um, you know, uh, uh, we're not doing anything about that. So uh, I think we're going to see a, a lot of strange behavior around that. If we do have an election, I and I do expect that the Democrats are going to be thrashed, I think you'll see them marshal their uh, troops in the streets, you know, the Antifa and the BLM, et cetera, to make a lot of mayhem in the in, in our country in the fall. All right. Last question. Is Donald Trump going to get to uh, to the election or are we going to be looking at Haley? Oh, no, I I think that Donald, unless unless, uh, you know, they try to kill him, I think he'll make it there. But what they'll try to do afterwards is to disrupt his ability to govern. Thank you, Mr. Kunstler. And by the way, folks, you can get Mr. Kunstler's books at Kunstler.com and you could get a um, a trailer of his documentary. Thank you for joining us, Jim. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. Remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news.